Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, the official podcast of thepinksmoke.com, hosted by myself, John B. Cribs, and my co-founder, Ms. Christopher A. Funderburg. Hi, John. Chris. <laughs> Happy October. Happy October. I'm very excited to get into this episode for our, our horror, naturally horror-themed October episode. Do you want to tell everybody what we're doing tonight? I absolutely do. That's the great thing about October is that it's almost, um, it's almost a law that you have to watch a horror movie every single day. There's just something about it that makes it even the experience even better. We were talking about Mike Lee's film, Mr. Turner, where he had the room set up where you, you stand there in the darkness and then you go into see the paintings and it enhances the viewing experience of for some reason october has that same sort of entering a dark room and <laughs> moving into the next one to appreciate it even more um so what we thought we'd do is something a little bit different today we're gonna be talking about some of our favorite horror films of the decade we're talking about the years 2010 to 2019 and joining us is a very special guest mr s.a bradley the host of hellbent for horror podcast and author of the fantastic book streaming for pleasure how you doing today, Scott? Ah, oh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm doing great. Anytime I get to talk about horror movies is a good day. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you get to talk about them a lot. So, probably a lot of good days in there. I would imagine for you. How many uh, days do you think you go in a row without talking about horror movies? Oh like, my God, that's hilarious. I'm sure five minutes or hours, I think, more likely. <laughs> I'm not sure when the last day was. <laughs> I'm sure it was like a lawyer deposition or something oh, like okay. that, perhaps. <laughs> but, but prior to me getting involved like I am now, I mean, four or five years ago, I was in Silicon Valley, and for a decade, I was a headhunter. And yeah. I was speaking daily, 16 hours a day, for other people's passions. And by the end of the decade, I was burnt out. It's yeah. really hard for me to not make a Tales from the Crypt joke about headhunters. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so happy that people bring up Tales from the Crypt every so often. So. <laughs> it's great. So before we get into this, before we kind of like explain to everyone what our idea is, let me just ask you, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this last decade of horror? Any significant uh, things you've noticed or differences from the previous decades, anything in the horror genre that you yeah. think really stood out for you? Anything that defines this decade to you? Boy, I, I think uh, what's great is how it uh, this last decade, I think, tries to defy definition and label so well that I think that's probably one of the biggest things. It's like, uh, now 2019, I will say that it's more like a quality over quantity. We didn't have as many strong horror films this year as we've had in mm. previous. Decent films, but we've had movies of note that I think are really strong in, uh, up to this full decade. And I think uh, one of the things is that this this year, I think through the decade, there's been like this buildup of confidence in storytelling, re reimagining the old tropes, mm -hmm. uh, letting people who normally don't get to speak or tell the stories, telling the stories revamping them a bit and basically hybrid vigor and what i call hybrid vigor is you know science fiction horror mixed comedy and drama and horror yeah. mixed uh, you have so much that's happening uh, with hybrid vigor that's just really revitalizing horror and bringing it in these different ways and i think uh why this 
decade has differed, like even from 2000, 2010, which is particularly strong as well. But what really made this strong, I think, is that streaming services uh, getting into the movie game. Uh, they're looking abroad. They're bringing more uh, films out of like film festivals into the mainstream for us to take a look at. Uh, plus original work that they're paying for. You know, people like Errol Morris are finally getting paid. Not that he's making <laughs> horror movies, but you have these guys that have been he fringe for a while. In, in a way, yeah. In a way. Have you seen a movie yet? It's no, like I haven't. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, you have all this where uh, you're no longer uh, having the constant tributary for uh, a five-year period where it's all zombie movies or it's yeah. all demon films or it's all psychological thrillers or it's all going back to the throwback of the slasher. All those things are happening at the same time. At any given moment, you can turn on your streaming service or go to the movies and you will find something that is different than what you saw last week if you want to. There's always the mainstays. There will always be the movies that will be uh, playing in a million cinemas uh, and that will feel as if it is uh, part of what the, uh, the driving forces of the decade. But the reality is we've had this really great uh, infusion, I think mainly because there are so many different places that movies can be seen and they can be made for uh, that we aren't seeing one specific style and so that idea of defiantly taking that and uh, turning that um, uh, on its ear the idea of what uh, the subgenres or the genres yeah. are all about but hybrid vigor going back to that everybody is not just inventing new things they're going back to folks like Polanski and Nicholas Rogue and John, uh, John Borman and Stanley Kubrick, they're, they're bringing this rich emotional examination into yeah. the horror as well. So we have real grief, we have loneliness, we have um, depression, shame. There are some movies where cowardice, like one of the movies that I thought was really great was The Ritual, Ruckman's The Ritual. It's not yeah. super original, but what is truly original is that it's a movie about cowardice and our main character is a coward. And yeah. when was the last time that you saw anything that was like that? So major themes uh, are about emotions. And so you have unreliable narrators, uh, House of Jack built and things like that. Main characters are unlikable. They lie to do wrongdoing. Uh, movies where nobody gets out alive. There's no happy endings. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy. It's a great joy. <laughs> Well, I love um, I love that you mentioned the hybrid specifically because one thing I love that you do in Screaming for Pleasure is try to define what is a horror movie, you know, and there are so many fights get started, wars get started over. Right. That's a horror movie. That's not a horror movie. But I think your definition of it is pretty on spot. If I can quote, an intense feeling of shock, dread, repulsion, or terror watching the film defines it as a horror movie. And I think that's a good thing to kind of get out in the open because I feel like a lot of the films we're going to be talking about here um, some people would say they're not exactly traditional horror. Yeah. And, and those themes that you were talking about, uh, loneliness, cowards, everything, you know, defines what you see in a horror movie. And when those things get brought out in the film, that, that sets it in the genre. And how they're used to manipulate your sense of dread or repulsion. And right, right. And, and I think just as important as saying that definition is the why around that. Like, why does a director who obviously knows that everything in this frame matters, everything in the story matters, everything in the lighting matters, why do they decide to send you home with the feelings of dread, repulsion, terror, fear, you know, uh, especially dread. Dread is like really dripping from so much right now. And I think it's an exquisite flavor 
that's happening in horror as of right now. And uh, it, it, the why I think is just as important because then you sit there and you say, why, what is it that they want us to go home with? Well, they want us to go home with this feeling. Because, you know, uh, movies, people will argue with me about that. And they'll go, oh, geez, just because, what, Bambi? Is Bambi a horror movie because there's two really scary moments? No. Obviously, Walt Disney didn't want you going home. He wanted to upset the apple cart and then put it all back up with nice shiny apples. But then ask yourself why some of these movies, if they don't want to be associated with horror, why must they use those horror tropes to get you to get that emotional feeling? And I think uh, a lot of times movies... Uh, I mean, somebody mentions personal shopper, which I'm so happy somebody mentioned <laughs> because that is like an MR James story. We're yeah. going all the way back to the literary beginnings of horror in uh, European language. And it's just such a great subtle ghost story. And the last scene is where all the chills come. So that's such a wonderful buildup. But I could see how people would be going, how is this a horror film? It's like, oh, <laughs> watch it again. You know? and, and so I love that we can be that defiant and we can be that diverse with our art right now. And that's what I consider horror and art. It can uh, alter how you feel just like music does one note can change your day you hear the beginning of uh, a day in the life by the Beatles maybe that makes you smile or a hard day's night that's one that I, that little jing and I think that if you see one frame of phantasm you just kind of smile <laughs> <laughs> great example uh, well yeah I um, I'd like to think just from what you're saying that with each passing decade, I mean, horror has just been enriched that the tradition of the horror story has not only kind of branched out into these other sort of non-horror films, but it's also, like you said, uh, going back to the origins of horror and the old M.R. James and literary horror and things like that are being more appreciated and are kind of being held up to maybe a higher standard than they would have been 50, 60 years ago, that, you know, we're kind of appreciating it more and it's kind of finding its way into modern films. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of the talk about elevated horror about is that horror, this, to me, this decade feels like horror is no longer a ghettoized genre. That horror is now um, not just mainstream. Some of the biggest hit films of the year in any given year are horror movies. You know, you're going to have the, the Us and Quiet Place and things like that that are massive hits uh, that can stand up against anything. But also that in uh, art cinema and how it's taken seriously that I don't think any there's any question any longer that, uh, that it's a completely legitimate genre and that artists and critics and audiences all treat it, I think, completely legitimately at this point. Uh, and I certainly, when we go through these lists, bringing up something like Personal Shopper is an obvious choice, but when as soon as we get into our picks, I'm just looking at like the very first ones by you. Um, these are all movies that are casually, thoughtlessly legitimate. Like, there's no question <laughs> that they need to prove themselves. You know what I mean? That, mm -hmm. that if you have something even like Midsommar, that's going to be taken seriously. And there's no, no idea that this needs to prove itself as a horror movie. You know, that even if you go back to, you know, you can just think of something like Scream, which half of what Scream is about is, no, there's thought and technique and ideas behind these. And let me pull this package open and explain it to you because people don't get it yet. 
You yeah, know? highly underrated film. Uh, I, I like to say that uh, Wes Craven is one of the most underappreciated horror directors because in three decades, he made one film in each decade that kind of changed the course yeah. of how horror was going. You have, if you're making people nervous over three decades, you're <laughs> paying attention. You know, yeah. you're paying attention to what's going on in the world. And so uh, I think that he had that, that nerve that he was constantly twinging uh, for most people. I, I'm more than happy to have horror go up against anything. Uh, yeah. and be reviewed at the same level as anything, if people will give it that ability. Uh, I, I hope, I, I'm, I love how optimistic you are. I'm not necessarily so optimistic because we just had two Oscar-nominated films become not horror movies yeah. at the Oscar stage, right? And uh, Ari Aster, who made Midsummer, which I think is an absolute fucking masterpiece. Yeah. Laugh, cry, think of all this wonderful stuff that goes on in that movie. He goes, well, it's more of a fairy tale than it is a horror movie. I never really yeah. thought of it as a horror movie. So when people stop apologizing for liking the art, then I'll, I'll start to feel that way. But I True. think that horror itself asks for no forgiveness, needs no forgiveness, does not need to apologize. It does not, it, it is not here to share half of its fucking sandwich at, with you at uh, recess. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. It has always been what it is. It is the forest that you need to go into to have a hero's journey. It doesn't come to you. Yeah. And so I think that it is what it should always be. And uh, sometimes it's uglier than it needs to be. You know, yeah. But I think all these movies say a lot about the decade when you get out of the decade for a couple decades <laughs> and then you really see what's going on. But as I also as think it's interesting that Ari Aster uh, would say that. To me, my immediate reaction is, what, what is the difference he's drawing right. between fairy tales and horror movies to begin with? Where does he think horror comes from? It right. comes from Brothers Grimm. You yeah. know? It's like if you read The Robber Bridegroom, that's a horror story. That is not, you know, and, you know, and there's so many of them that are Even like the that. red shoes. Read red the red shoes, shoes. Hansel and Gretel, The Fish yeah. Wife. These are yeah. horror stories. And to kind of try and rebrand it seems a little... Look, I know those guys are under a lot of pressure and they have PR companies and handling companies, especially when they get to that amount. And there's some guy in a PR room telling them how yeah. to change and what to say. And so I, who the hell knows what he actually thinks about yeah. anything. But I think, I think what you're saying, though, makes a lot of sense because I do think there's erosion and it's kind of like a drip of water hitting a rock erosion, but yeah. it's happening. And I think it's happening because the geeks truly have inherited the earth. Uh, yeah. Pop culture is no longer, I think there's a blurring of the line between pop culture and just culture. Yeah. I think high art is more foreign and bizarre in culture at this point than popular culture is. What used to be held at arm's length is now considered fine. The Marvel Universe will tell you, you know, uh, I mean, people talk about those films as if they're a new Coppola. And, yeah. and so, and if the movie works and it really talks to a generation, it has deserved and earned that. So I think the idea that we may have moved from a spot where esoteric, uh, I, you know, we're still fighting uh, two zombies, Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael. Yeah. You know, those two people basically told us what was art, what wasn't art, and what we could 
up thumb our noses at. Yeah. And people are still thumbing their noses at this stuff for no good reason. They're going off of an old archetype, an old template that does not compute anymore. It yeah. stopped computing once there was an internet. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think it's going to happen. I think horror will be. And then I'll wonder what we'll do with our wonderful yeah. but horror. But I think there's a massive change already. I mean, you were, when I was a kid who liked horror movies yeah. in the 80s, that was synonymous with you're an outsider and a creep and a weirdo who who is potentially jerking off to this shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. There, and I don't think that's the attitude anymore. Yeah. I think if you uh, say a heart, you like horror movies. People don't respond by saying, "Oh, you're a creep." Yeah. yeah, they don't say you're a creep. What I usually hear is, oh, that's nice. That's so sweet. You know, depending upon what company I'm around. But I will, yeah. of course, it has gotten better. And it's gotten better because of things like uh, Walking Dead. You know, the mm-hmm. things that many of har- many a horror fan disavow after a while because it becomes yeah. popular. Uh, these things actually help so much. And uh, the the legitimization. Now, does that mean that people still think that movies like We Are the Flesh belong in existence? <laughs> you know, no, right? But yeah. we are talking about the, the 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 more upbeat films or the more mainstream films. Sure, I, yeah. I think that they've they've definitely gotten in. And Halloween's like the biggest holiday now so hard halloween and all of that you know i think that there's something to be said uh when people can wear you know pokemon uh underwear in in public you know i mean it says something about it's okay to be a geek now it's okay to be outre it's okay to be outside of the the norm i don't know what the norm is at this point i think the norm that we grew up with at least the one that i grew up with you can feel the death knell you can feel disappearing yeah, and in terms of availability, like you were saying about streaming, I mean, it's just great that We Are the Flesh is accessible to people who actually want to see it. Right, yeah. right. You can see these movies. I remember in high school hearing about Argento and spending so much time just trying to find a pan and scan version of these movies, you know, just like the uncut Suspiria, yeah. you know, that has that X, that's 98 minutes, not 80. You know, right. like checking every VHS box and trying yeah. to find the actual version of the thing. Phenomena, not creepers. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. That... Impossible. Let alone something like Tenebre, which, like, if you went to a horror convention and you got lucky, you could buy a VHS of it, and there was a fifty-fifty shot that it wouldn't be a blank tape. Right. Know? Right. That, we were living in like that scene in eight millimeter where they're huh. going in a place with unmarked boxes and things. And that, that's kind of what it was like. And even better, I was talking about this with someone recently. So yes, I do talk about horror almost every day. Uh, <laughs> um, there was, uh, uh, we were talking about like Danny Peary mm-hmm. and uh, the early Fangorian, how so much of what we consider relics of worship come from three or four people who uh, all had this they were the only people that we could read at the time you know the psychotronic encyclopedia weldon you know all of these things those were our bibles and there were movies like you were talking about getting a vhs there were movies that i only had one still of that was a shot from a book and that haunted me 
I'd be like, oh my God, I got to see what happens when that throat finally tears out or whatever, whatever yeah. it was. I remember that for Last House on Dead End Street. I spent a, over a decade trying to find that damn movie because I was like, oh, they have a what? What happens in that movie? <laughs> uh, like, and everybody talked about like, it's the most, it's not that it's so gory, it's that it's just so hateful. It's just that it's so downbeat. And you're like, as a horror fan, I need to find out more about this. But yeah, there were movies that I, I held the torch for before I saw them, only on the small synopsis that I had and one frame from the film or from Dance Macabre, Stephen King's Dance yeah. Macabre, where he had this wonderful list that I had to go through for books and movies and really uh, helped paint how I look at uh, horror. You know? It is yeah. funny how for, you know, as much as us horror fans lament the loss of first the drive-in and then the, the video store and, you know, all these other places that we love to go visit, Accessibility really is pretty great right now. I oh, mean, yeah. incomparable. Incomparable. Uh, yeah. There's no yeah. comparison. Very few things are truly dead. Vinegar Syndrome and Severn Films and Synapse and these different places are finding all these old 16 millimeter yeah. rough prints and, and they're reworking them and bringing them out. Arrow is coming out yes. with all these great releases. So, movies that I only saw you know, at a drive-in in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> now, now they exist again. But and I always thought that. To, to new movies too, I feel like that if there's something that comes out, like a few of the ones we'll be talking on on our list are foreign films that I, it's, yes. if you think about like, God, how hard would that have been to have seen, you know, if, if it came out when I was a teenager. Now you just go on Amazon Prime and you watch it today. You know, right. Like right now, if you feel like it, you can watch these movies that you just go, you know, I know it won an award at Venice, but like it, it would have never played in any theater within a million miles of me, probably wouldn't have been at any video store and you just yeah. never would have seen it. You could see all of Pasolini's films if you have yeah. the time. And it's like, it's just astonishing. You know, Fassbender, you can have every one of them. Yeah. I know, I, in high school, I looked so much for Fassbender. That was like, you know, I had a list of 20 movies that were like my movies that I want to see that I had heard about. And one of the things on that list was any Fassbender was on that <laughs> list of like high school kids. Yeah. See, this is great. And this is what, uh, when I'm talking about horror, I don't pretend that there's not a whole world of art out there. If mm -hmm. I truly believe that this stuff is good enough to be reviewed as art, then come at me bring your films, bring the art. We can talk both at the same level. Yeah. And I think if that's important, you know, yeah. talk Fassbinder and then talk Al Adamson, maybe that's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the idea that, you know, even if mainstream Hollywood isn't funding, you know, as many horror films a year as they should, there's always going to be a Brazilian horror movie that you just right. found out about, yeah. that you now have the means to see, which is terrific. Yeah, and Brazilian horror movies. Oh my God, there are some <laughs> great ones. And Mexican horror films. Uh, just about all the Spanish-speaking stuff is really amazing right yeah. now. Uh, really you, uncomfortable. Do you, uh, well, not even right now. Uh, Mexican Dracula better than Spanish Dracula better than regular Dracula, right? You agree? <laughs> I think it's more fun. I think uh, <laughs> I think uh, Browning's does drag a little. <laughs> but it's but it's got a beautiful opening shot. You know, yeah, the thing that I will say is it has an op a great, beautiful opening shot. But, I know my so wife is about to read Frankenstein. And I told her, be prepared. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's, let's transition into what we're doing here because um, 
the main thing that I, you know, found out because you never think of it during the year when like, oh, the new CN Sona was on Netflix. That's cool. But when you actually have a list of movies people send you that you haven't seen and you have to go and hunt them and you can find them, it's terrific. And so what we've, uh, what we decided to do with this episode is we're each going to pick five of our favorite horror films from the decade. And I made sure to tell everybody, we're not talking about an objective best of list. We're talking about five films that affected us all the way great horror films affected us in the past. So none of these are individual lists or a number one being the best, et cetera thing. This is just five films we'd love to talk about and think other people should see. In addition to that, We've reached out to several horror experts, horror producers, horror writers, um, people who just excelled in the genre, uh, and asked them to contribute their own list, which we're going to be reading throughout the episode and commenting on uh, throughout. So I'm excited about that, too. I think this is going to be great. We've got a lot of stuff to go yes, through. we got yeah. good stuff. So we'll go one by one. Scott, uh, John, and then I will each do one of our picks. And then we'll go interspersed with uh, yeah list from our contributors. The other list from the contributors. And again, five uh, five personal favorite horror films of the last decade. Yeah, um, Scott. John and I have a tendency to avoid the word best. We don't like best. <laughs> right. <laughs> favorite or personally meaningful and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's like a, a safe word in BDSM. We have to call it <laughs> sandwich. <laughs> well, it's, I feel like best. You're asking me to judge things according to a schemata that I don't care about. Yeah. Yeah. It immediately kills me. It's, it's yeah. a complete killer. Uh, when somebody comes up and goes, what's your favorite? What are your three favorite horror films? I'm like, I've already let out my, uh, left out my favorite just thinking yeah. about what <laughs> one is or three. Yeah. You know? And it's just, it's so hard. And right. I think uh, a completists, I mean, if you want to f- ask critics, critics may be able to give you top 10 lists or best yeah. lists. But if you're a completist and that means that you've tried to watch everything that you possibly can and that you revere this stuff how yeah hell is fleeting in any case i mean you know yeah. just yeah. seeing your guys list i'm immediately like oh i want to change mine you know yeah, yeah. So. what's 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 your favorite nerve ending <laughs> <laughs> i need them all <laughs> uh so scott why don't you get us started with your first pick let's hear it Sure. So my first pick uh, is from Ireland, the Ireland UK version, uh, a movie that is a first feature film for the director. He had only made a couple shorts before this. And talk about a real powerhouse start. This is Liam Gavin's A Dark Song. And it comes from 2017. And it completely blew me away when I saw it. Uh, I saw it on streaming. Uh, It had opened up on something. uh, And I sometimes if you just see the right title and just by the title i was going i need to find out what this is i'll pay i'll plunk down the denarii and see how this goes and uh, so a little bit of an idea of what the film is a woman rents a country estate uh for six months in ireland big palatial mansion she has a purpose and the purpose is that she's going to have a more than a seance i think you can literally call this a pagan ritual (laughs) to try and bring back her son who was murdered by a group of teenagers who we find out uh, killed him in a quasi satanic ritual kind of thing. Sounds a little bit like what happened in North Point, Long Island back in the eighties, Ricky Castle and everything where it was really more of like a heavy metal kids. And then they just had this happen. But the idea of Satanism, she can't get that out of her head and she can't continue with her life. 
you see this woman just burning away until she speaks to this kid one last time. So she's obsessed. This is a movie that is all about grief. She's compelled by it. She hires an occultist who I think has a substance abuse problem uh, <laughs> to perform this ritual. And the two of them go on this estate. Now the estate for this ritual to happen. This isn't like seance on a wet afternoon or like uh, Legend of Hill House where, or Hell House, uh, where you have a, a, a bunch of oracles sitting around uh, a Ouija board and candles. This is something that's going to take six months to do. And the two of them are going to live in that estate six months. They're locked inside. They can't leave until the ceremony is completed. They take salt and put it all the way around the house. And it's like, why six months? Well, I have no idea, but I can tell you that it sells this idea. And it sells the idea of how long we can hold on to resentments and grief and not live our lives. Uh, but this idea of opening the veil between two worlds, which they go into great detail to talk about uh, and to contact the dead. I've always thought it needs to be more than, you know, is this Joan? Is yeah. this Joan? Ring a bell if it's Joan. You know, I, I've always thought that that was somewhat hokey. The idea that you would need to get the attention of a, a, an entity and be worth their time. And the way that they do it is really actually kind of ingenious where they have to go. But they're working on this thing. And there's, so there's this commitment to this universe. Dark Song is really mesmerizing where you have this huge um, a mansion and every room is part of the ritual. They're like putting branches in one room. They're sitting there meticulously putting down salt and wax and all this stuff. And they just keep calling and it's exhausting. But we are completely in this where we're in a sacrificial altar and every room has symbolic purpose. Uh, you uh, just feel that it's, it's somehow a physical ritual that requires blood, pain, and, and heartbreak. And I think that's one of the things about this is that the movie is scary it's chilling it's smart it looks fantastic it plays with liminal space which is one of my favorite things which is where you see an action somewhat in the corner and you're not sure if you saw it or not It'll give you this idea of ghost it plays hardball sometimes with your emotions uh, it is uh at times of beautiful to look at and ugly to look at. And it's really about physical ritual, the rituals that we do, hidden emotional rituals. So this is a movie where not everybody's reliable. You think you know who might be reliable. You think you might know why people are doing what they're doing. A, a, a generic horror film probably would have had a very point A, point B, point C thing going on. But this movie, to be able to talk more about grief and getting over grief and troubled souls, what possesses our troubled souls, needed to go down a very enlightening and, uh, and surprising route. I think uh, these people are in addiction. They're trapped in the ritual of addiction. They're uh, trapped in uh, the ritual of grief. Uh, they're in rituals of abuse, which I think they even kind of, it gets more pronounced the more they're in this ritual. And they're driving each other crazy. They are slowly going mad inside of this place, this emotional fragility that they're going through. We don't know. Is th does this mean that the ritual they're in is working? We don't know. What lengths would you need to go to to get someone who's dead to rise, to speak to you one last yeah. time. And once you get that attention, 
can you turn it off? How yeah. do you turn it off? If you've gotten them so excited by you, how do you get them bored by you to let you go on with your life again? But what's interesting is that it's a movie that is at times scary, uh, at times uh, surprisingly enough life-affirming. Through this whole movie, by the last scene, I was like, this is beautiful. This is actually giving me chills. This is life-affirming. Who would expect that in a horror film? And so I thought this was a great uh, film. Uh, and Ireland's been putting out magnificent horror films for a while and, uh, of varying styles of storytelling. But A Dark Song is my first tip pick. I, and it's highly I love this movie. I yeah. love it. It's so great. Uh, it's great because for a long time, it reminds you a lot of uh, Don't Look Now. With a yes. horror film, which yes. I know is your, your first kiss with horror, as you like to say. Right. Um, not only because it's about grief and about not being able to move on with your life after you've had this horrible loss, but because it becomes a film about a domestic situation that's interesting yeah. and severely fucked up. <laughs> the guy, you don't know exactly, you know, for the longest time, you don't know if he's actually doing things that are going to work, that they're actually, if he knows what he's talking about, if he's an expert at this, or if he literally is just tormenting this woman for his own play or sort of some sick kind of pleasure right. on his own. And it becomes like a movie prove about it to himself. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Or what, yeah. where his, his head is at. We never know. He's a great character. Yeah. He really yeah. is both terrific and have an amazingly creepy chemistry together. Yeah. He's probably the best occultist I've seen in a movie since Simon King of the witches. Andrew Prime. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love this movie. Um, the Hallow is another great Irish film that I just oh, yes. recently. It's a good. Uh, In Fear was... is great. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really that love it. I prefer Dark Song to, to both of those, but yes. that's In Fear is also very good. And a similar domestic nightmare movie as well. Yeah, yeah. But like you said, when it, once it gets through kind of the, you know, really mind boggling stuff where you're wondering what the situation is exactly, trying to get answers to get to that ending, it does become something kind of horrible and beautiful at the same yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, it's an excellent pick. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, the first list from our contributor. And this one is from Kathy Koja, uh, author, playwright, director. Uh, she has one of the most unique and poetic voices of the last three decades of dark fiction. Uh, her books mm. include The Cipher, Bad Brains, Strange Angels, Skin, and Under the Poppy. Um, you should go to kathykoja.com to read mm, up on mm. some of these books and more. Consider signing up for her Patreon. Contributions going to her new project, Dark Factory. Um, I'm so glad that she was able to contribute a list. She wanted to let us know beforehand that her definition of horror is somewhat elastic. So <laughs> she's picked Personal Shopper, Olivia Sayas uh, from France 2016. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, directed by Anna Lily Amapour, uh, 2014 U.S., Son of Saul by Laszlo Nems from Hungary, 2015. A Quiet Place, directed by John Krasinski, 2018. And The Ballad of Buster Scruggs by the Coen Brothers from 2018. So I think it's a good example to start this one off with, are some of these horror or are they not? She definitely has an elastic uh, view of horror. Um, Buster Scruggs is one I think, you know, definitely has a lot of kind of creepy stuff going on in it. That last segment, The Mortal Remains... It's pretty much an outright ghost story, you know, sort of uh, these yeah. strangers heading to Fort Morgan and the stagecoach with some ghostly implications. Uh, it has segments that are equal parts Jack London and Ambrose Bierce. 
Uh, yeah, it has the, stories about madness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nero Gondas has sort of an occurrence at Owl Creek Ridge vibe to it a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I could definitely see why she would consider this a horror film, even though I've never met anybody who called it a horror film. Up to yeah, this that, point. Uh, when I first saw it, I went, oh, well, I, I don't know about that. But when I saw <laughs> it, uh, then I started thinking about it. And I was thinking about how even the, the song that, uh, um, oh, my God, I'm forgetting the name. That, of that. Tim Blake Nelson sings? Yes, Tim Blake Nelson yeah. sings and what happens to him. From the very beginning, they're setting this thing up of this, this disturbing sense of death that's happening yeah. through everything. And they've always had, I mean, uh, I always think that the Coen brothers' humor has the same kind of humors like Polanski. Yeah. <laughs> they have like this real like repulsion where she gets uh, she cuts the guy in the back of the neck with the razor and yeah. he just pushes her away and is looking in the mirror going like this. It's a very funny, realistic moment. It's also very disturbing. And very that whole theme, both of them have very oh, yeah. nasty senses of humor, which yeah. I think in the case of Polanski, he's overall not a very mean-spirited filmmaker, but when he's funny, it's always mean. Oh God, yeah, yeah, and so I, I agree. Uh, I, I said, yeah, when I thought about it, uh, I, I thought, did I walk out of Buster Scruggs feeling elated, or did I leave with a certain feeling of like a, <laughs> a, a, a doomy sorrow? And I, yeah, I did. Uh, the one that I would say, if I had to, you know, nitpick, it's one of the few that I don't think is as good. Uh, is a Quiet Place. I really did not like a Quiet Place. I saw it in the theater and i i i there were so many things about it that just smacked of let me tell you exactly what this yeah. movie's about mm-hmm. and and so uh even though i tried so hard to love it it ends with the like this john uh, james cameron aliens kind of thing i'm like they went <laughs> through all of this to have that end you've got to be fucking kidding me you know the military never thought of it nobody thought about a shotgun somehow it's gonna work yeah and so that just felt like such a weird cheat and i i i i guess sometimes knowing too much is a problem so like seeing the the director come actor giving himself the jesus christ pose yeah i'm like oh god not again yeah but you know who loved doing that polanski yeah, oh yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> the Jesus Christ pose of, of dying people. So Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah and uh, at least he made himself look like a shit in every yeah. one of his movies. Yeah. Uh, uh, this was, you know, the long-suffering dad. It has great moments in it, but I had to say I felt like I was in a Monty Python sketch when they're like playing <laughs> soft Monopoly, you know, <laughs> with, yeah. with sponges. And it's like, and you live in the woods. You know, yeah. okay, things are after you. I know what we'll do. We'll just put sand everywhere in the woods. <laughs> yeah. How about like not living where there are twigs that will snap every time? <laughs> so, but, I mean, that's, I, I agree with you in some ways, but I think also, and this is something that I think, especially with popular horror, sometimes there's a hook that's just so killer that you know that movie is going to be a classic mm-hmm. the moment you hear it described to you. You know, it's like, killer's going to come get you in your dreams. You're like, oh, yeah. Right. Ah, instant classic, you know, and that, uh, that uh, one has the same, same feel. True. And I may love it later, but I yeah. saw it in the theater and I was a little, I was a little disappointed with the end. But uh, as I'm saying this, I'm also thinking about three really great set pieces that are in that film, uh, yeah. especially the one where the older gentleman loses his wife in the woods. Oh, yeah. And he's ready to erupt and he's like, oh, no, 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 no. And the idea of that is just yeah. so 
amazing. And so right there, real emotion, strong emotion in it. So uh, for even, even though I can poo poo it uh, because I'm a grumpy old car <laughs> maven, uh, it still and I has. I just got to say, John and I have dedicated ourselves to total positivity for this episode. So if we come back with anything, <laughs> this is the reason. You know, saying like, this doesn't sound like the Chris Funderberg I've spoken to before. So, <laughs> so this is where we're coming from. And also, you know, I think also what's part of exciting and fun about these episodes for us is getting these lists from a lot of people and stepping outside of my own mindset about mm-hmm. it, you know, and, you know, we could just do our top five and, hey, this is me, Chris Funderberg, listen to what I have to say, but I'm excited right. to hear what other people have to say too, especially because they're so divergent. There's a few films on here that people love that come up over and over that I'm like, that movie's fine. I'm really <laughs> Everybody loves Train to Busan as much as they do. You know, like, <laughs> fine, you know? and uh, but I still it's interesting to see oh that really did hit a chord with people you know? Right. And I'll say that this is a great list. I mean, what I love about yeah. her list is it's like, a, it's like a good wine. I mean, it has little different flavors and tones all the way through it. And Personal Shopper is magnificent. Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I love that movie. You That's also, such you a- read that list and you're like, somebody very specific came up with this list. This is yes. not a generic list. There is a really interesting person behind this list. Yeah, exactly. It's oh, not yeah. a Saul. List, I feel. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so our next list is from Andrea uh, Subasetti, uh, executive editor of Rue Morgue Magazine, the greatest magazine ever to come out of Canada, in mm. my opinion. <laughs> uh, author of uh, When There's No More Room in Hell, The Sociology of the Living Dead. She is co-founder of the Toronto-based horror lecture series, The Black Museum, co-host of the excellent podcast, The Faculty of Horror, with Andrea uh, Alexandra West. Sorry about that. That's a great podcast. That's fantastic. And her choices are... Uh, Suspiria, 2018, Luca Gottonino. The Cabin in the Woods, 2012, Drew Goddard. 10 Cloverfield Lane, 2016, Dan Trachtenberg. Uh, the Witch by Robert Eggers, 2015, and Karen Kusami's uh, 2015 film, The Invitation. Mm-mm. Yum, yum. Yes, and I feel like that that's a good list too. Um, where it's funny that the Kathy Koja's list is so idiosyncratic. I feel like this list is a good summation of when I talk to horror fans, these are ones that I know a lot of horror fans like all of these movies. You know what I mean? Like these are not to say that they're like popular favorites to diminish it in some way, but this feels like a very well considered list to me as far as, you know, um, what really struck a chord with people that I hear a lot from yeah. my friends who are horror fans at what really meant stuff to them. Cabin yeah. in the Woods and Suspiria in particular. And yeah. The Invitation, which is a film that I feel like- Magnificent. Slowly being discovered too. I feel like in another 10 years, everyone will just know that was one of the best from this, from this decade. Boy, I sure hope so. That's, that's a Polanski film as far as I'm yeah. concerned. That's, uh, she does such an amazing job in that. And, I, and this is, I love this list because it's, it is, stuff that's a little bit more mainstream, but it's still off number yeah. stuff like 10 Cloverfield Lane, you know, yes. uh, and Cabin in the Woods is such a different feel from say The Witch or yeah. The Invitation. And yet Cabin in the Woods, I think is such a great idea and such a great story. And, and really it helped 
I think uh, there may not be anybody uh, that has helped horror get more mainstreamed than the guy who started Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, Whedon just, uh, his ideas just consistently uh, play with uh, the genre and expectations in the genre. And this is a really fun movie, although he didn't direct it. Uh, It's it's under his mantle and certainly it has his feel. And uh, this is one that my wife who cannot stand horror movies was able to make it through and i'm going you do realize this is one of the darkest ends that you yeah. <laughs> see in a film but you're laughing and so it's it's like it's a great thing so yeah. I, I really, his work definitely feels like an antecedent to especially to me so much of the television horror like walking oh yes an american horror story and and even the new sabrina the teenage witch obviously that yeah. i feel like that tv horror definitely doesn't happen without him Oh, yeah, absolutely. Such a a big component of modern art. There's something to be said, too, about um, films that, you know, are are accused of being movies that people who don't watch horror movies call the best horror movie ever made, you know? Cabin in the Woods and Shaun of the Dead and films like that. And it's like, you know, well, it's an exposure to the genre that they wouldn't, they would not be willing to sit through otherwise, you know? And it's a little dipping the toe into the waters and everything, but uh, I don't think it's a negative thing necessarily. But I think it also appeals to hardcore people as well. I mean, she is not a, a novice by any stretch of the imagination, you know. So I think that it's I think that it's an interesting film. No, I, I think more people agree on the cabin in the woods than they do on Suspiria. Quite honestly. Yes, I mean, I just said I wasn't going to badmouth anything. Boy, do I hate that Suspiria remake. And I understand why. <laughs> People like it, but I just—if right. ever there was a movie that was not for me, that's that one. Well, I, I have a long dissertation on that that I won't give, but uh, yeah, about my. <laughs> my you back on me and you to just the bad mouthing yeah. this area. Yeah. So. I've I've had. Uh, I mean, you go to horror conventions, people just run up like with cattle prods. Suspiria, tell me what you thought of the new Suspiria, <laughs> and it's like, all right, all right, you really don't want to know, but yeah. But I I think it's it's the movie that had to be. If you were going to remake Suspiria, this was the road you were going to end up on or you were going to just do a ripoff. So yeah. uh, it's, it's literally like upside down land, Mr. Mazipalix or whatever, yeah. that Superman character. Well, because uh, Suspiria isn't a hook. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, not right. like, it's, not, it's not a mask. It's not a plot. It's a very specific Argento experience. Right. If you're going to remake it. You're, you either are doing an Argento impression, which is not going to work, or you're going to do some insane left field right. allegory about the Stasi and fascism in East Berlin, you know, thing. In all browns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and with dour music, very, exactly. very quiet, somber music. Yeah. Yeah. And rain. No Lots sense of the fantastic. Zero <laughs> sense of the fantastic. But great opening. <laughs> ah, there we go you said something nice I'm going to move on to my first pick which is another um, mm. directorial debut although it February. is confusing because technically it came out uh, after another movie that the director made it was held over for a little while but when you think of it as his directorial debut it is amazing just how confident and skillfully crafted mm. uh, this film is and I'm talking about Osgood Perkins film The Black Coat's Daughter uh, which I've been really, really glad to see has gotten a lot of traction since it came out. A lot of people are talking about it. Uh, it's a film that's deserving to be talking about. I don't even want to get too detailed about the plot because it's a very twist-heavy film, and it's also mm-hmm. a film that benefits from the less you know going into it. But I will be able to say it's about three women 
played by uh, Kiernan Shipka, Lucy Boynton, and Emma Roberts, all of whom have a problem that's tormenting them that we learn more about as the film unfolds. It becomes this maze constructed by their reliance on authority figures, parental figures, specifically male authority figures, and their inability to navigate a way out of it without some very grim consequences. So it's great. I mean, you have a giant portion of this film where you're just sort of watching these women without knowing everything about them, without knowing where these things are leading. And you're completely captivated, which is an incredibly hard thing to do, to not just come out and let the people know, here's the gimmick, here's the hook. This is just a, a mood piece that you're going to be watching and paying attention to if you want to learn anything. Uh, it's a very economic film. It's very few characters, very mm-hmm. sparse settings, hotel room, a late night diner, a giant university that's been cleared for the holidays, but it feels much larger. It feels almost oppressive and it's very tense, gripping tone. Uh, it's a true phantasmagoria. You know, the feeling of being mm-hmm. stuck in this beautiful and awful dream mm-hmm. um, where you feel for these characters, even though they're somewhat abstract, even though they're, they're, what they're going through is not entirely clear. Uh, and everything, what we know about the characters, the dangers that are around them, even time and geography are definitely manipulated by Perkins in this film. Um, so that by the end, you are really, really impressed with just how well he's juggled this world and these people. I feel like I had the same reaction to this movie as audiences must have had to Psycho, which is only, you know, appropriate hmm. since Ob- hmm. Oscar Perkins obviously is Anthony Perkins' son and doppelganger. Um, but it's modest, it's sad, it's surprising. Um, upon rewatch, I was really worried that it wouldn't be as effective because, you know, I would know everything there was to know and I would have experienced it and I wouldn't take this journey with these characters again. Um, I think I just appreciated it more, honestly, going through it again, the craftsmanship and again, the, just the use, the very modest use of story and narrative Everything about it is just great to me. I'm really excited for him as a filmmaker. I'm excited for his new film due out at the mm-hmm. beginning of next year, Riddle and Hansel, with Alice Bridge yeah. playing the witch. Yeah, how That's hot. amazing casting. So this is a film that I love. Uh, it's, a, it's a great pick. Uh, so I knew about this movie long before uh, it, it got released or it was out for people to see. It was probably the most hotly anticipated, uh, almost like Bigfoot thing. <laughs> seeing it, like, it was like seeing Bigfoot uh, at some film festivals. It had yeah. played horror festivals for a while. And you would always find this person at the bar afterwards who'd go, dude, have you seen February? I think it was February at that point. Right, right, right. And uh, and then you heard Black Coat's Daughter, and they're like, yeah, it's now called Black Coat's Daughter. So it was like probably two or three years, uh, maybe not that long, maybe two years. Uh, I had been hearing about this at festivals, and then, boom, it finally hit, and I was dying to see it. And it's one of those few times that that kind of anticipation really worked. And that it, I think what really strikes me so much about Perkins style and that movie in particular, which I liked much better than I did. I am the pretty thing that lives in the house, which I thought was fine. Which I, I saw think, first. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. saw that at the Toronto film festival and John had to twist my arm to see this. Cause I was like, eh, how, I just don't believe it can be as good as you say it is because I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house is like forgettable. You see that at yeah. Toronto and you see six better movies that day. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you yeah. don't, it was just, nothing so i'm really yeah. glad 
that John insisted <laughs> to put time on his side for this one. Yeah, this was great. And uh, the things that maybe didn't work so well in Pretty Little Thing, uh, worked, or Pretty Thing worked very well in Black Coat's Daughter, which is he has a very somber style to how he sets things up. So you're not ready for the way that movie goes. And I think that's what's truly amazing. I was like sitting there going, you are fucking kidding me. When I saw what was happening towards the end of the film, I was like, this is so great. I would have never figured because it's, it's like how we talk about hybrid vigor. Sometimes inside of the genre itself, it's like, well, if you're going to have John Houseman in a film, it's going to have this certain look. And if you're yeah. going to have, you know, uh, I don't know anybody else, uh, Woody Harrelson it's gonna have a certain look you know uh, there, there's just the two styles there's uh, when you start going down the drawing room kind of style that also makes some of the choices somewhat stilted towards that and what I thought was really interesting is that this film has multiple flavors to it inside so it catches you completely by surprise with where it goes you think you have an understanding of the level it's almost like the scoville test for peppers oh we're probably around a three on this one no problem yeah. all of a sudden you, you got into the second reel it's like oh seven seven no. <laughs> what the hell happened and i think that that's amazing it's hard to pull off without it seeming like you don't know what you're doing or that you don't understand tone and it really, really worked with that film. And as you said, very few people in it. Uh, so the actresses really need to carry what's happening there. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of what I love in, in films like this, which is give me the pregnant pause without it getting too long. Yeah, and when you have a scene like the scene in the hotel room with James Remar, that's, good. that's a long scene between two people and there's not it's not exactly you're not sure who's the who's more dangerous to who in this scene <laughs> right um that's very deliberately paced but very expertly handled in that you don't get bored watching these two people sitting to, together in a hotel room with nothing else going on with no musical score just he allows the silence to sit there and he allows the space to be there uh, and yeah, so it's incredibly impressive. Yeah, that's amazing that you said that because now I need to see it again because just thinking <laughs> about that shot, uh, mm -hmm. it's like that's so wonderfully creepy. Yeah. It's excellent. All right, let's move on to two more lists. Um, I'm very excited for both of these people who've contributed. First one uh, is uh, Maddie Doe, the first female filmmaker to direct a film in Laos. Her new film, The Long Walk, played uh, this year's Toronto Film Festival and Fantastic Fest. I am super excited to see it. Um, so Maddie's list is Black Swan, Darren Aronofsky from 2010, The Witch, 2015, um, Martyrs, which technically is 2008, but we'll let her get away with it. That's catalog here. It may have been, you know, she saw it later uh, than some people did. The Autopsy of Jane Doe from 2016, Andre Dahl, sorry for the pronunciation, and um, the only movie that I have never heard of from any of these lists, Fatal, which is a South Korean film by Lee Dong-koo from 2012. I don't even know how you see this movie. Um, mm. So I'm really curious to track that one down. I yeah. do not know what it is. And the rest of her list is so like bold movies that yes. it's hard to imagine it's not another like knockout punch. Like, yeah, all of the be. other movies on her, on her list are like swinging to knock you the fuck Oh, out. yeah. So you yeah. go like, wonder what the hell that one is, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, Autopsy of Jane Doe is... Uh, <laughs> really surprised me it's yeah you know, very like simple premise that makes you think ah this is probably just going to be like a you know 
those cat scares and you know simple yeah. thrills and everything but the relationship between uh the father and son brian cox and the emil hirsch characters uh is really well done so you actually really care about these two and you really want them to get out of this horrible situation they find themselves in uh it has that sort of thing that i've noticed is coming up in a lot of films from this decade the unreliable reality in horror films. yes mike mm-hmm. flanagan i know is a big fan of this from uh uh, absentia and oculus and things like yes. that where you know you think you see someone and they're not really there you think you experience uh time and it's completely warped and changed so it kind of the rules are kind of thrown out the window at that point so that's another thing that i really like about it yeah absolutely love that movie i, I was on a podcast about that we took it apart like uh, we did our own autopsy on it <laughs> and it was just amazing because you start looking at it and you realize that that's not a body it's never been a body and it's really this look at this rage this woman rage of being manhandled over and over and over again through through centuries and so it's like this really vicious what would rage do well it doesn't matter who you are it's a curse it's coming if you pick me up you're you're screwed and uh, the idea of how everything in that movie if you watch it everything is old you know nothing in there is of a certain time period you know they're in the oldest uh, mortuary possible the putting bells on toes there's chalkboards like i thought oh chalkboard yeah i didn't think anything of it but people who were i was on the show with much younger than me they're like on who even has a chalkboard anymore why would anybody even have a chalkboard i'm like oh my god so it was like another level to uh, the puzzle that was able to be uh, pulled out by people who just see a different reality than what I had, had normally seen. So I love that. And Martyrs is one of my absolute favorites. So that's a, a movie that I was like, girl, when I saw it, somebody got to put it on there because they're <laughs> famous. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's such a great movie. And, yeah. And like you said, every one of those is a knockout punch, like a giggle. I can't wait to show this to my friends. Knockout. Punch. Yeah. Like, Um, Yeah, like coming for you. Uh, Next contributor we have is Tom Vaughn. Tom is a long-suffering fan of Texas sports teams. (laughs) The Astros are doing well, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're there. They were good enough for Tom, it seems, on on social media. I know. He was complaining about the Texans the day after they beat the Chiefs. And I wouldn't be like, knock it off for one day. Very, really enjoyable, though. Um, uh, But he's also the director of the 2011 film Playing House, and writer of last year's Winchester, uh, which is a film that we had Tom on this podcast to discuss. Um, he's got several scripts in development, including one about the haunted HMS Queen Mary in Long Beach, which I really hope gets developed into a film. Um, and he's a writing teacher in Houston and Los Angeles. He's all over the place. Uh, so Tom, what, he, what have you got for us? He's got uh, The Invitation, again. Uh, he's got The Conjuring, James Wan, 2013. The Pact, Nicholas McCarthy, uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. Train to Busan, South Korea, uh, Yon Sang-ho from 2016. And he has uh, Jeremy Saulnier. Saulnier's uh, Green Room from 2015. Mm. Oh, that's my. A, that's an interesting list. That's an interesting list. You know, I'm glad The Conjuring was on there somewhere. Yes. I feel like there's been a few like sort of decade defining horror franchises and that's one of them. And yeah. I think that having the, 
I'm glad some people showed respect to, to that. I feel like that's one of the things that you're talking about that maybe gets so popular people forget how fucking well directed these are. And oh yeah. Director James Wan is. James Wan is so underrated. I mean, all the way from Saw. I mean, he's great on the first films and I don't yeah. think he does any of the sequels. He might've done Conjuring sequels. I'm not sure about yeah. uh, the, the first ones like, uh, um, oh my goodness, the, the one. Uh, Which one? Saw, Death Sentence? <laughs> No, not that sense. <laughs> but uh, I was a saw is magnificent. Uh, yeah. Such a small film, but if you really look at that, I mean, he from the very beginning, he's always had this great style of understanding suspense and dread. Mm -hmm. So in Saw, you have this whole thing of someone walking through a dark room with a Polaroid camera or a flash that's yeah. slowly feeding up, and that sound and the flashing—it's so beautiful. And he does that several times in that film, and then uh, Insidious. Mm -hmm. that really started working with liminal space. Did yeah. I just see that or didn't I just see that? Yeah. And, and he was so good at making set pieces where you thought that the scene was over and it continued on. Like yeah. the whole thing with the alarm in the house going off, the intrusion alarm, and it keeps coming on. So that was just absolutely amazing. And then, of course, Conjuring, which is so classy. I mean, when we're talking about uh, the, the whole clapping thing, he came yeah. up with something that was just like those campfire stories when you're a kid. And he made yeah. it seem very new and very real. And even yes. though I met Ed and Lorraine Warren and my tongue goes right through my fucking cheek thinking of how ridiculous they were oh, in my real God. life. Total con artist. Yeah. That is uh, the horrible <laughs> legacy of the con Conjuring is that these shit heel con artists are in any way revealed. But uh, yeah, but at the same point, they uh, the movies still have this great uh, heft to them and they're yeah. visually smart. It's not, uh, he loves the drop off of light. Yeah. And so he uses that so often. And so Juan's somebody that never gets talked about. He's kind of like Zemeckis or something like that, where yeah. you make a lot of popular films and yeah, who are you? I yeah, shit who on cares? You. All it is yeah. is impeccable Hollywood craftsmanship. Who gives Right. It, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like at a certain point, it's like, that's the way the machine is supposed to run. You know, yeah, like right. When it runs perfectly, who's impressed? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Your heart's still pumping. Big deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's, I think he deserves more. And I also think uh, The Pact uh, yeah. for Nicholas McCarthy. I wasn't as big on the second one, but oh, the first our one. Patrick had directed that one. He can tell oh, really? stories about it. Yeah. It well, I don't even know if I should be saying this on the record. I don't know what's on the record or not. But certainly a lot of people involved with the second one were not. We're not thrilled with it. Yeah, it felt like it was being pulled in a, in a direction that the first one didn't go. But I, I will tell you that the first moments in that film, that one long, constant shot of her on the laptop talking to her daughter, I think it was. Yeah. And, and that whole thing uh, was just luring me right in. And then mm -hmm. the first attack I was like, oh my God, I could feel like the, the uh, fundamentalist Christian that I was when I was a kid, <laughs> just getting all freaked out of real demons and everything. I was going, yeah. this, that was so well put together yeah. in, once again, very few settings. Yes, know, uh, very smart, low budget film. Very yeah. smart, smart uh, modest movie. And, and several then, of my picks are that way. You know, yes. I just love the low budget films that give that, punch. I should say too, uh, all of our contributors who are writers uh, professionally, you know, couldn't help but throw in their own little notes, you know, for what they thought of these films. And I neglected to uh, read uh, Tom's. So about the, about the invitation, he says, 
Uh, I'm not always a huge fan of simply ending a film with a burst of violence to wrap things up, but this one earns it. Uh, but he does agree with you uh, by saying Juan is a legitimate master uh, at, at doing horror films, never relies on fake jump scares and delivers each one with an actual payoff. So yeah, uh, the mm-hmm. pack he says is a ghost story mixed with bad Ronnie. How could I not love it? <laughs> Train to Busan, great characters, great scares, end to end tension and so much emotion, a modern classic. And the green room, he says, keeps the tension up and never gives you much relief. It's m- most grounded of these films. That's why it scares me so much, brutal and unflinching. Yeah, yeah. and that's a great example of, of hybrid vigor where it's, it wouldn't be a horror movie except for how it makes you feel. That's the only thing that makes it a horror yeah. movie. Where it goes. Genre trappings. Yeah, where it goes, how people are. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're in a horror universe. It's yeah. all going to lead you right to that one place, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, Saulnier does that great. I mean, Blue Ruin is another one that I would put up there. I mean, yeah. that's, that's not as much a horror film, but I think it still has those horror elements to it. And especially in the very beginning, it's such a great movie because it takes all of those things that you see in movies. Like, I'm just going to go in and I'm just going to kill this guy and then yeah. all my friends are going to help me and everything falls apart and the the tension of reality banging against preconceived notions works so well in that film and i think that also happens in green room but but green room is just an up a notch film and uh the the use of dogs i mean what's so great about that movie green room and i don't want to give it away for anybody but it's like usually you get mad if someone doesn't like die in plain sight (laughs) but this movie is just like so ruthless it's like oh my god i think that person's dead i think they're gone you're kidding things as genuinely scary in real life as just a bunch of dogs coming right at you like yeah yeah i mean not even a scream gets out like you hear "Ah!" yeah and it's like, holy shit, that feels real. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of terror, uh, it, it all depends on where you want to go in the end. And that movie earns the horror badge. All right, Chris, let's pop the cherry on your first pick. <laughs> wow, what a gross phrasing to pair with this movie. <laughs> I am picking uh, A Savage Region, also known as The Untamed by Amat Escalante from 2016. Uh, This movie is about uh, an unhappy household. There is a young woman and her two kids, her husband, who she does not get along with as well, who's a boorish guy, he's a homophobe, (laughs) is having secretly having an affair with the young woman's brother, who is gay, uh, and who is a nurse. And uh, they are all unhappy, they're all unsatisfied. There's a lot of simmering tension and sort of domestic malaise and misery. And of course, the only thing that can fix and cure this domestic malaise is a space sex alien being kept in a barn out in the country by a young woman who's a patient. Yeah. A brother who is a nurse. And um, this movie, obviously, just even on its surface and descriptions, uh, is a lot like Zulowski's possession. Uh, I find it to be a lot more grounded in reality. To me, mm-hmm. I don't, I really like Possession. Possession has a major flaw in Isabella Johnny's nonstop crazy performance. She's just a crazy person in every frame. And the theme has a hard time developing beyond, I'm a reasonable guy, I'm Sam Neill. Why are these bitches crazy? It has a hard time getting, they make me want to punch them. They're so crazy. Maybe they deserve to be punched. It has a really hard time 
getting beyond that. Yeah, his divorce was going happening yeah. at the same time. So yeah. yeah, that didn't code anything. That didn't taint anything. Yeah, no, it has. It, it's. I find it to be a jaw-dropping film in some ways, but also a shallow film in some ways that I really wish had a better actress in the lead role. In The Untamed, the two main actresses are phenomenal in this movie. The two young women, the sort of one who, when we first meet her at the beginning of the movie, is already having an affair with the alien creature that's starting to turn violent. Uh, and that's sort of a twist for her. She's convinced this thing could never do violence to her. And then the young woman who's in the bad marriage, um, who gets her husband uh, sent away to prison sort of on false pretenses, a crime she thinks he's committed a crime when in fact the sex alien has committed the crime. Um, this movie is, uh, Amad Escalante is a, uh, is a cohort and friend and colleague of the great Carlos Regatta who did Post Tenebris Lux and Silent Light and Our Time. This movie has that same approach to cinema as Carlos Regatta, a sort of slow cinema, slow developing, very quiet, not much dialogue, sort of trying to find the constant poetry in landscapes, mm. trying to find bizarre images in landscapes, long strings of moss and a stream and exposed tree branches and roots growing out of a hillside where it's constantly trying to just photograph nature as it is, but find how it looks grotesque naturally. And then push these characters out of the city, out to the country, and have them sort of consumed by natural grotesquerie, by this sort of like eight-dicked creature that, you know, how can you go back to your husband or fuck a random biker after you've had sex with an <laughs> alien? Um, but it's also about addiction in the same way. Everybody mm -hmm. keeps talking about sex as, I'm compelled to do this thing that I'm afraid is destructive. I'm compelled to this person that I feel like is a bad thing. I'm making bad decisions and I'm helpless in the face of it. Um, so thematically, I find this an incredibly rich, incredibly beautifully shot movie. If you like horror movies, you may hate this movie because this movie is, is art cinema, you know, and it is very, I think, much more concerned with being uh, poetic than being scary in any way. And I think that it's an interesting film when we were talking about earlier about how horror has been legitimized, that a lot of the reaction to Zalowski's film back in the day was like, Ridicule. What the fuck is this? There's a monster. There's a sex monster in the middle of this movie. No one reacts to this movie this way. It's more sort of like, you know, horror trappings are something you can explore. And horror sci-fi, you know, talk about hybrid vigor. Right. This movie has basically the same opening shot as the thing in Predator, you know, of just like the space rock getting ready to yeah. come down into the atmosphere. Um, but also as a horror movie, this movie has a few moments, especially in the second half, like I don't want to spoil them, but when we see like the crater for the first time where the rock has mm -hmm. crashed, it's a true like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck kind of moment. And then also when you finally sort of see them in the throes of this creature, it's, it's, um, it's so poetically pornographic and horrifying. It goes, you know, it's something sexually gross and enticing and then it goes even further than you might expect with it and um so i think that for me uh this is a movie that's really easy to connect to the horror genre as much as it feels like something that goes off into outer space in its own way outside of it oh. and, and and i i love it 
You should all watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love it as well. I didn't think I was going to. And, uh, you know, I had heard a little bit about it and I was like, okay. And I, I don't know when, but I saw the, the, the preview for it and I'm like, what yeah. the fuck? Because they just kind of give you a little bit of a shading. Yeah. And you're going, what was that that I just saw? So what I love about this movie is that you, you know, you're really not giving that much away by saying there's a, a fucking alien, you know, an yeah. alien sex beast. I mean, you're, the money shot happens in the first shot. Yeah. You get the, and you don't even know what happens until you know that it happens. You're like, oh, yeah. did I just see what I thought I saw? Yeah. And then you have to piece everything together. And yeah. From and then, then you just on. sit on that for like 40 minutes. Right. Like, so, so the other things. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, you know, it's like uh, Adventures in Screenwriting or whatever. Goldman said, never start with this big money show. No, that yeah. was exactly what they did. And you live with that for, you're able to take in all the other images that, that are coming, yeah. waiting to see what this really was. And, you know, I, I love what you had to say about addiction because I, I looked at it as, you know, uh, a mixture of possession uh, under the skin Oh, and a little yeah. bit in trouble every day. You know, yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. strange thing where you have desire. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like yeah. the, 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 whatever that stuff is that they used to say in the blood. Well, it's in the blood. You're not, you're not going to be able to stop it. He's got blood crazy. Yeah. And so you, you see this, this destruction happening and uh, some that's being caused uh, before this thing gets involved, like the, 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 the husband. Yeah. And, who's a homophobe who is having a, a gay yeah. tryst with his wife's brother. Uh, you know, that's what one thing about the film is that uh, like trouble every day where, you know, kind of get the idea of like their kind of mediocre, boring lives, you know, they'd rather go and like be preyed upon by this vampire woman. This yeah. movie, And I mean, I don't think Amante has done straight up horror before really anything like this. Certainly. I mean, some of his are so violent. I mean, they're violent and they're yeah. hard to watch, but he definitely is someone though, who's more interested in, I think that life that like regatta yeah. uh, life in Mexico and just the hardships that these people yeah, have. Watching it this time. It's so much like our time. Yeah. It's like, it's like a sister film to our time. That's, like, a, that's good, a great, yeah, that's a good feature, feature right there. Other than our time is four hours, but, um, <laughs> Uh, but you know that and the idea, the sexy. horror, the horror comes from this idea that uh, these people prefer to go to a sex monster and possibly be devoured by it than continue living their difficult lives. It's a horrible thing to have to think about. Yeah, yeah. Also, they're compelled by the monster in some way. Sort of what we're we're taught about the creature is that it has some psychic sort of frequency that ups everyone's like. Uh, disinhibits them in terms of sexual desire. So yeah. it's sort of everyone gets in its throes, you know, and there's right. people early on that are making decisions that you're like, I don't get it. This old couple, do they work for the monster? What's right. the deal? But as more is revealed, it's like they're in the throes in their own way. Yeah. And like you said, mention the crater. I mean, uh, yeah. I think at one point they say something like, uh, this is our primal nature thoroughly distilled and it's not going anywhere and yeah. animals get it much quicker than we get it. And you get to see how it's, it's yeah. an amazing thing that would uh, not be out of place in antichrist, you know? You yeah. Know, it's very, very, bizarre. It's very chaos reigns moment. Yeah. Very chaos. You reigns. know what this movie needed though? What it's missing? Phil Burgers. <laughs> 
It's got no Phil Burgers in it. <laughs> I get an off hard time here. So let's, uh, shall we go through a more contribute, a few more contributors list? Yes, absolutely. Um, if you are a horror fan, specifically if you are a fan of horror novels and fiction, and you do not have a copy of Paperbacks from Hell on your coffee table, <laughs> give up your uh, membership card right now, uh, because that is a Bre- uh, Bram Stoker award-winning book from a couple years ago. And the men behind it are the contributors of our next list. First is Mr. Grady Hendricks, a guy with his hands in many pots. Uh, he's a founder of the New York Asian Film Festival. He has uh, written amazing pieces for Tor.com, Slate Film Comment on topics close to my heart, like movie novelizations and mad movie parodies. Uh, and he has evolved into a very prolific fiction writer. Uh, his novels, Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, We Sold Our Souls, and the upcoming Southern Book uh, Club's Guide to Sling Vampires are in his canon. And on top of that, he also is a screenwriter of this year's Satanic Panic. So yep. he's a busy man. <laughs> Magnificent. Um, and so his list includes uh, Train to Busan, Don't Breathe, made by um, Fede Alvarez from 2016, uh, Satan's Slaves from Indonesia by Joko Anwar, Annihilation, 2018, Alex Garland, and One Cut of the Dead by uh, Shinichiro Ueda from this year from Japan. I hadn't seen One Cut of the Dead. I had heard some buzz about it, uh, but it wasn't until Grady put it on his list that I watched it, and it is great. Yeah, a lot of fun. It's really fun, a really fun movie, a very surprising. And the first thing Grady told me, too, when he sent the list was, don't read anything about it. You know, just right. completely blind, and that's the way to enjoy it. I'm glad he did because uh, going in knowing nothing is the only way to see it. And I will say nothing more because that really is the only way to go see this film. Uh, one of the few from this year that I've really, really loved um, uh, in terms of horror movies. I will say that it's a great list. And I, I read Hendrick's um, We Sold Our Souls, which I thought was just fantastic i'm from pennsylvania and he okay. hit pennsylvania so well in that and if you're a heavy metal guy you realize <laughs> that he did a lot of research that made every chapter and everything just make you laugh out loud while you're reading this it's relatively absurd story <laughs> that works really well uh but his list is really cool because this is kind of showing the diversity of where horror can go in one list. So you have Train to Busan, which is this hybridization of the disaster movie and the zombie film, uh, and somehow finds room for emotional gratification as well. Uh, Don't Breathe, which many would probably say is not a horror film, but I could say that I think it's definitely a horror film. I mean, (laughs) I think it's as much of a horror film as The Devil's Rejects. I mean, in fact, it has some things that I think are quite like Devil's Rejects. Yeah. Uh, And Satan's Slave, which is magnificent. Uh, Some people get mad at that movie because they sit there and they go, oh, it's just uh, the evil dead again. I'm like, watch it one more time. Yeah, there's there's a bit in there that you might say, but then there's Annihilation, which is once again, poetry in horror. Mm-hmm. And uh, Annihilation, I still stand my ground on that. I've had people tell me that it's not good. And I'm like, no, watch it again, man. If yeah. you're a real horror fan, you should love this movie because of the theme. And That's another movie that for some reason, PR people want to take it away from the horror genre too. It's clear yeah. as day a horror movie. Oh my God, yeah. And, but that's one that you hear like sci-fi. Yeah, it's, it's basically sci-fi. Color Out of Space, Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. Yes. Re- reimagined as, you know, this ambitious uh, science fiction horror film. Uh, yeah. Satan's Slaves, though, is one that I uh, saw for the first time also after getting this list. And uh, that's a really fun movie. It's, it has great misdirection in terms of like, yes. 
who who should I be worried about <laughs> in this yeah. very complicated situation that these guys have got going and all of the past that gets dredged up for these characters and how they all have to kind of solve the puzzle in order to deal with it. So another fun movie just from beginning to end. But uh, yeah, excellent list from Grady. Um, next we have Will Erickson. Will Erickson ah. uh, of Too Much Horror Fiction has uh, been collecting and reviewing vintage horror fiction from the 60s to the 90s and celebrating uh, specifically horror paperback cover art. Um, he uh, basically is the kind is doing for horror fiction what the Kaiju cinema people did for movies in the 60s. <laughs> he's legitimizing it in a way that's really exciting. Um, and his list is uh, Absentia, Mike Flanagan, 2011. Kill List, Ben Wheatley, 2011. The Invitation, uh, Kusuma's movie. The Neon Demon, Nicholas Reffin's film from 2016. Snowtown, the Australian uh, film by Justin Kurzel. And, ah, Will, he snuck in a 2008 movie that he couldn't help (laughs) mentioning because it stayed with him. Lake Mungo by Joel Anderson, another Australian horror film from 2008. What I actually like about this list is that he paired Neon Demon, which is one of the glossiest movies you could ever make with Snowtown, which is one of the primiest you could ever. It's such a nice contrast between it. And two movies also that on the surface seem like horror movies, but sort of um, wander away from the genre in an interesting way, that I think those movies are both horror movies down in their bones, but end up walking away from being traditional horror films in a lot of ways. And again, like what we're talking about, where I think some people would raise their eyebrow as clear as it seems to me that Neon Demon is a horror movie, that that's a horror movie. Right. And I think that people who are affected by Snowtown would say, this is not a horror movie, this is a true story. This is a real life story. This is, this is like, you know, this is like a, a, a harsher Harmony Corinne or something. You know, this is a picture of like yeah. extreme poverty and unhappiness and just like the low level, well, I guess it becomes high level depravity that just like, poor teenagers get up to, you know, and, and might balk at calling it horror, especially because of, of its true crime origins. And so I think that's, those are a really interesting uh, contrast in addition to a few of the other films on there we've already talked about. If you call Texas Chainsaw Massacre a horror film, I think you got to call Snowtown a horror film. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I look at it as, you know, when you said the true crime thing, I always talk about the gatekeepers, you know, putting up yeah. velvet ropes everywhere. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. This, uh, this is a true crime. Yes. This, <laughs> this is not horror. And like, well, you know uh, that it's more depraved true crime because you're basically just sitting and lauding the death of yeah. real people. And you don't care about the real people now, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like mysteries. I think mysteries are the most twisted of them all because yeah. they really don't care about it. You have to have somebody die. Yeah. And then the rest of the thing is destroying the credibility of that person and yeah. destroying the credibility of everybody else. So it's like the most venal look at humanity. <laughs> And all our horror film, you can at least sometimes go for the person who yeah. is uh, And what's being interesting chased. about Snowtown, too, is the murders are such a small part of it, you know, that in the real story, like, the crazy shit happens, like, after where this film ends, you know, that it yeah. gets so beyond the pale. That's and like, so I think it's an interesting take on, on, on it to choose the stories that the, the in and out points for the story that the filmmakers have selected, I think make it really powerful. It's, it's one of the things that when I saw this list, it made me go, ah, that's the other movie I was thinking of. Cause I was thinking of Buddy Giovanzo's uh, Combat Shock. Oh, came, yeah. and, and I thought of Snowtown when I saw Joker. 
when people are yeah. like going, oh, Joker, it's so, and I'm like, I already saw a combat show. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I kind of already know this guy. <laughs> yeah. And, and Snowtown has that same thing where that's a hard one. That's a yeah. really, really hard movie. That's but, one I will not tell people to watch. Yeah. And yet it's this great thing because it hits on something that I see value in some movies that other people don't necessarily see, like August Underground, the first August yeah. Underground, because it's talking about the banal about how sadism comes from banality, yeah. from ennui, from yeah. just there's nothing different. It's not the, the devious guy sitting somewhere. It's the lonely kid in the farm somewhere yeah. that is so used to seeing death on the farm that he doesn't make a distinction between that and the guy who's mentally challenged down the street that he you know hits with rocks every day. Yeah. And, and so uh, I think that there's some, that evil, that disturbing yeah. area of evil doesn't get talked about enough in a horror way. You know, and Absolutely. I think, it reminds yeah. me of um of angst, not oh yeah at all, but just sort of like you watch it and there's no there's no like hook onto for this is what redeems this story and being told this story. It's just like a story that continues to be ugly. It's just like a puddle of brown spreading out. <laughs> yeah, you know? and it had that. It reminded me of that. Ah, <sighs> oh, joy. So we made it to um, Mr. Bradley's second pick. So, uh, I guess we're at my second pick. So, uh, I want my second pick is from 2012. It's from Canada and it's American Mary by Jen and Sylvia Soska. And anybody who listens to my show probably already knows, uh, that I'm a big fan of this film and I've had to battle people about this film quite often. In fact, I was just down, uh, it's not even the, the, in the top in that year. I wouldn't even put it in the top 20 of that year. And I'm, and I'm like, <laughs> really? You wouldn't do that. I was at uh, Scream Fest uh, down in LA and uh, I was there to see Rabbit. Their, uh, mm-hmm. first, their new film was premiering. And the night before that, I was sitting watching this film and before it started, some people were talking about American Mary in the background. So I just kind of opined and said my piece. And then after that, the woman who was uh, getting the recommendation said, it's really that good. And I said, oh yeah, I'd consider it one of the best films, best horror films of the last decade. The guy goes, you, surely you jest, this other guy <laughs> in the front. And he says, oh, and I know them. So it's okay for me to denigrate their fucking film i guess yeah. but uh, you know he, he said this stuff and they I was know like, oh, i'm an asshole yeah they know i'm an asshole so when i say it the, the end is just bullshit and i'm like okay so the last two minutes destroyed the, the first uh you know 112 right okay yeah. so that's how it's going to be but it's a very divisive film in that way for some folks and i think it's because of where the movie goes so i think it's a wildly original take on the frankenstein story first and mm-hmm. foremost where the monster is really a a career and uh, it's the film career and uh, you have this uh, the villagers of this patriarchal system that everything in the movie is currency and the movie sets up so brilliantly three careers uh, people who do body mod people who are surgeons and people who are tattoo artists and strippers so there's a fourth uh, the currency of flesh Currency of flesh is all what this movie hits on. System that is in place wants all the currency for itself. So you have a story about this woman, Mary Mason, who's a medical student, struggling medical student. What I love about this character is that she is not 
uh, a Hitchcock. Uh, well, I don't know. I was just yeah. a curious person in the wrong place. She is instrumental in her own demise. She is hard-boiled. She has all the human uh, frailties that you can have. She's fun. She's nervous. Uh, she's also mean. Uh, she's also going to go for what she wants over anything else. She's vindictive. She's fragile. She has all of these facets, and all of them are just as complicated as uh, the original Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, that is. And so she is a surgeon. But she's trying to be a surgeon. She goes to a strip club to make some cash as a masseuse, one of the few things that she can do that'll make any money. And she happens to be in the wrong place or the right place at the wrong time. Places run by the, a mobster and they are killing a mob snitch downstairs. And they've, they just wanted to torture him. They went a little bit too far. And so one of the moments that I realized that this is a personal film and that this is a film that's going to have a lot of heart and soul and energy and emotion, is that when she comes by this, uh, to see this person who's been tortured, the snitch, his eye is torn out. He's got a slash down his throat and down his chest, and he's crying, and he's whimpering. And she comes over and uh, almost in a religious fashion kind of calms his body and his mind down. She's like, it's okay, it's okay. And there's just this reality that normally you wouldn't see in a movie like this, especially in a movie that starts with some humor. There's a lot of satire in this film, as yeah. well as the horror that's in there. And so uh, she saves the, uh, the snitch's life and she finds herself suddenly uh, $5,000 richer from the mobster, but her name gets out because there's a stripper there that sees what she does. And she gets into the lucrative black market world of body mod. And so in America, in American Mary, uh, the symbols of worth are constantly being pulled from uh, fragile characters. So money, body, these are the worth. Strippers, surgeons, body mod, these are all inexorably tethered between money and flesh and that the two are pretty much mutually exclusive, are mutually uh, married to each other. She's a college student who's heavy in debt. She takes questionable jobs. She knows that it's questionable. She knows that she doesn't have the stomach for it. She finds the stomach for it. Uh, and she's doing this in a job that she doesn't really love. It sucks, but she can't leave it. And that's pretty much an economic reality around 2008 uh, with a great recession. So we have all this happening. But what's really cool is that what's subversive about this is that most most movies from Todd Browning's Freaks onward, the deformity is part of the monstrosity. Whereas in this movie, the body modification is the freedom that happens. So it has this power. Uh, the, bod the body modification crowd would normally be there for a joke. But here, this is a movie tells you again and again how modification is a choice. That People are constantly owning other people's bodies and they say, absolutely fucking not. There are people who take their hand off. They will feel more human and more themselves by cleaving their tongue or taking their hand off. And it doesn't go, that's fucking freaky. Instead, it says, these people are feeling more alive than the people who you are seeing who are the surgeons who are having fuck parties up in apartments. And so it's an open defiance against the molds that society is putting these people into, that they're being forced into. So they're turning self-loathing, which this movie also deals with, the idea that 
people in power can make you loathe yourself, that women have their bodies turned against them in arguments and in everything else. And they turn that self-loathing into self-actualization. And I think that's one of the greatest things about this movie is that it takes this, the body modification as a form of revolt. It's very Cronenbergian body in revolt. And uh, it, they add this social satire about this objectification of women. So you have these two characters that are in this movie where women are j- judged based on their bodies first and how their bodies have been used against them. And they're characters that I don't think any guy would have ever come up with. They're just so wonderfully satirical and so painful. The thing is that there's heartbreak underneath all of this. So you have uh, Beatrice, Beatrice Johnson, who is this woman who has had 14 uh, surgeries to look exactly like Betty Boop because that's what she feels like inside. That's how she's been treated. So she's going to own it. You know, if you want to think of me as Betty Boop, I'm going to make it so it's inescapable. Anytime that you are trying to use me, that I am Betty motherfucking Boop. And I think it's so wonderful that she grabs this and she has the money to be able to do it. So she feels luckier than her friend, who's this woman who is uh, known as Ruby Real Girl, who has been sexualized and objectified so much that she wants to be turned into a living doll, not the fetishist living doll. She wants to physically, literally have sexuality taken out of her completely. Completely. She wants to have her nipples removed, everything removed that makes her female, but still keep that form. And so she, uh, we have the cartoon sexiness that is in Beatrice Johnson. And then we have this tragic, I want to have no sexuality whatsoever in Ruby Real Girl. And she goes, I've never had any surgeries to look sexual. I want to be like a doll. No one cares if a doll's naked. You know, no one looks twice if a doll's naked. I want that to happen to me. Think about the pain that has to happen for you to do that. And this is one of the most graphic moments in the film is when there, she is having this surgery in a vet's office, right? I mean, it's, 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 there's even this lack of uh, ability to do what this woman wants in legal fashion. It has to be done illegally in a vet station. So, you know, you're, you have this thing where this movie shows these people who are uh, reacting graphically and viscerally to being objectified. And the characters wear that internal pain externally. So it's like German expressionism coming to life in, in two characters. This is fucking amazing. So their perspective gives, uh, the Sasuke sisters' perspective really gives us a glimpse into how so many women feel that they are perceived. But it's not just that. I mean, you have that stuff, the Frankenstein idea of a career. But there's also this underlying piece on that other sp- bit it's almost like its own modification of the of the story you can very easily look at the surgeons as hollywood and you can see the body mod people as independent cinema people you know that the yeah. people who are the surgeons they're doing it by the numbers uh it's all glossy and professional there's only 11 or 12 people who get all the jobs they denigrate everybody they force everyone to jump through hoops and then there's the imperfect and, and male dominated also and male dominated right as soon as they see her coming out of uh, or they see a stripper talking to her outside of the school they make all the connections that they need to. And they go, this is what she is. She's just this trash. So they use her at a party. And then the rest of it is where she goes for revenge. And that's where most people will call this a revenge tale. I think that's like one word out of a long paragraph that this movie is about. And it's so full of humor. 
and it's so full of pathos and it's violent as all get out. When it decides to get down and dirty and become that revenge fantasy, that pound of flesh, uh, it is really unsettling for a, say the least, a limited budget. I don't even know what the budget was, but you can tell just by some of the sound mix and stuff that it was probably relatively cheaply made. It's an amazing first uh, well, it's not their first film. They did Dead Hooker in a Trunk, but it's it's this amazing sophomore effort uh, that I think was just such an amazing jump. And I think that uh, that's their most personal film. They've made several films since then, but I think this is one that really spoke to uh, this parable of uh, jaded, cynical people uh, who run everything. And I think one of the things that I found is that when people hate this movie, they really hate it and they hate it for, oh, she's just not believable. Uh, I, no woman would ever do that. Guys don't do that. I've heard all that wonderful stuff that feels almost borderline misogyny. One of my favorites is, she's not likable. I couldn't stand her. It's like, oh, so you loved Dr. Frankenstein. Vic, Victor was okay, right? You know, he thought he was okay. So it's the idea of how fascinated she loved is. Franklin. Just love him in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, Franklin, exactly. He's a whole group of people is so lovable. <laughs> yeah, every part of them is so great. I love that she's flawed. She participates in her own destruction. It's a very human thing. And I think it's a very human horror story. And I think that it breaks a lot of, of taboos in its own way. It breaks a lot of preconceived notions. And it's one of those movies that so few people have seen, but that's starting, I think, to really get some, some mojo yeah. behind it. You know, when I saw it on your list, I was surprised because I could have sworn it was from the previous decade. And I think the reason is it's ingrained in my head as such a new horror classic already that I already think it's like older than it is, you know, yeah, it came out longer than, um, you know, uh, five years, uh, six years ago. Um, and they wrote that in like a week or something like that. I think I, I read in an interview that they met Eli Roth in a chance encounter. And he's like, yeah, tell me what you got. And they're like, oh, and they just came up like five off the cuff ideas. And they said body modification surgeon or something like that. He goes, that sounds good. I'd like to read that. Go home and get it. He's like, well, we have to. And, and they, they, <laughs> yeah, I love, uh, I love how it's a film about how body dysmorphia becomes transformation. Like you said, like self-actualization. And I love Mary as a character. I think Catherine Isabel's character is so cool. Yeah. Uh, she's, you know, this funny entrepreneurism where that even, where even a gifted self-made woman who survives the predatory world that she's decided to become part of, uh, is going to be confined by its expectations. So even when she sets out to, you know, help these people and to change these people, there's still going to be an ultimate uh, punishment for her. Yeah, the, the torches are being lit by, by the villagers. Uh, and, yeah. and, she, and I love how she plays ball, right? You see this one scene where the doctor tells her, you know, go out, Mary, and talk to the, the uh, family of this guy who's had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. She goes out, she comes back in. And he goes, now go out and tell, her, tell them that he died. And she has this moment of pause. And then she's like, I'm a professional. This is what the job entails. I knew this coming in. She swivels, goes out there, tells him. And so she's willing. Okay, you want to make the gate really rough? I'll, I'll make it through the gate. Oh, you don't want me at the gate? I'll make a side gate in the independent world. And then when she does, she still gets zapped for it. So she's ready to play the game in whatever way. And they still take her out. Yeah. And that great line, how they take it? They're upset. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah very cool movie um 
And uh, thank you for that rundown. And I think that's, that's the final word on the movie as far as I'm concerned, uh, what you just said about it. Uh, appropriately enough, our next guest list is Beatrice herself. Uh, if you know horror, you know the name Little Miss Risk, Tristan Risk, um, mm-hmm. star of American Mary, House of Manson, Save Yourself, Innsmouth, Mania, Frankenstein Created Bikers, and Alia. Um, she, of course, is the horror-inspired burlesque dancer and pinup model, the first zombie striptease, uh, and also the writer of the film Happily Ever After and director of Parlor Tricks. Um, very excited to get a list from her. And her picks are uh, The Girl with All the Gifts, Colin McCarthy from the UK in 2016. She writes American Mary, duh. Uh, the Skin I Live In, Pedro Almodovar from Spain, 2011. The Witch, and also The Love Witch by Anna Miller from 2016. I'm so glad she put American Mary on. <laughs> so am I. So am I. I love her list. I mean, uh, it's all uh, empowerment, right? Mm-hmm. All of these characters that have to come through great oppression and then uh, find, uh, find their way to uh, what ends up being Skin happy I, endings. Uh, Skin I Live In and American Mary is a great double feature also. Yeah, yeah. That are like twins. Oh, that just gave me chills. I never thought of that before. See, that's what's so great about lists, right? Even yeah. though I can't make them very well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Girl With All The Gifts. I mean, there's one that I think is a happy ending, even though it can be seen as an unhappy ending. <laughs> uh, and The Witch, another one that I think, uh, you know, depending upon who you are, is that a happy ending? Or isn't it? I think it is. Midsummer, I think, is a happy ending. You know, yes. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think Skin I Live In is so much like American Mary, mainly because you know it has this idea of body horror and the Frankenstein idea uh, totally turned on the top, you know, on the top of its head. But also that idea that's taken in Skin I Live In from Eyes Without a Face of yes. modification as actualization. Of yes. Who. Not the opposite of Browning and Frankenstein of trying to repair yourself, the mad scientist, science as a way of becoming whole, which I think yeah. matches up very well with, with American Mary. Ooh, and also that it diminishes it to call it a rape revenge movie. Yes. <laughs> a very small part of it. Well, yeah. And I Live In is a movie too where it's, even in 2011, I was like, I'm amazed he got away with this where every scene is intentionally every rape scene in it and i think there's three is intentionally a gray area rape which <laughs> like, i can't yeah. believe that he got away that 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 was not more of a commentary about it was that uh almodovar intentionally is asking the question of what is rape and what do we mean by rape and it's like well you handle that one almodovar i will sit that conversation out <laughs> right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Stay, stay Tristan, that bad boy. Yeah, let me hear what Tristan Risk <laughs> thinks about that, and I will sit that one out. Wise decision. Wise decision. Um, so thank you, Tristan. Fantastic list. Um, my second pick. My wife asked me recently if there was any movie to that clean I, up around the house. Some John. My wife asked me recently um, if there was any movie I was genuinely scared of. My answer was no, of course not. Since I was a kid, I read Fangoria. I know about makeup effects. I know I've seen Behind the Curtain. Once you've seen Behind the Curtain, you can't genuinely be scared of a movie. You can be unsettled. You can be disturbed. But scared? No, I'm not going to turn off the movie and not be able to sleep. I mean, come Uh on. Uh, And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I had to concede I think there actually are some films that scare me. They're all made by uh, Shinya Tsukamoto. <laughs> Those are the only films that really get under my skin in a way that makes, gives me the creepy crawlies, you know? And 
um, ever since Tetsuo the Iron Man, mm-hmm. he's produced films that I'm tempted to label indescribable. They're too unusual, too extreme to find adequate words to define them. Um, he just picks images that seem tailored to prey upon my own inexperience, my limited worldview. He really opens forbidden windows, this guy. You know, I mean, he shows me worlds that genuinely frightened me and I wondered did these ideas come from a human being <laughs> I could never come up with them but at the same time he adds a familiarity to them he an urban dread an unreliability of our own senses and a dependence on memory that can ultimately destroy us Sukumoto I think is scared and awed at the power of human biology in a way that makes Cronenberg seem like an undergraduate, you know? I mean, he's just thinking so much beyond his own thing. So mm-hmm. when he decided to make Kotoko, um, we should have known going into this movie, because Chris and I saw the Toronto together, that it was going to be a rough one to sit through, but we never could have anticipated. So there are women in trouble movies. There are great women in trouble movies. I'm talking about Repulsion, talking about what Robert Altman's images Let's Scare Jessica to Death, The Witch Who Came from the Sea, all the way up to Mulholland Drive. Mm, uh, mm, and a lot of the films that we're discussing here, um, Kotoko just kind of knocks them all off of the table um, because it's the story of a woman whose name may be Kotoko, we're not 100% sure, um, raising a baby and not doing a very good job of it, to <laughs> say the least. Um, she is... Uh, prone to fits of psychosis and nerve-wracking hallucinations in her daily life. And that really is the only way to describe this movie is that you're watching 90 minutes of this woman having a horrific breakdown and a baby being involved at the same time. Um, I've not seen this and that just creeped me out. Yeah, it will definitely creep you out at the bare minimum. Um, but and what's the baby being involved in scenes where you're like, that's a real baby in that scene. This where is, she's like oh making God. stir fry with like fire coming out of the yeah, oven. Yeah, not in control of the fire on the stove and she's like oh my God. down with the baby in her arms. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I nearly pulled the, the armrests off my chair in this theater <laughs> watching this movie. Uh, now, Kotoko has a double meaning in Japanese. It's uh, both a musical instrument, but it's also, with a slight change of character, can mean a child. Mm. Uh, and I think, I, I think what Tsukamoto was interested in in portraying this character, who's played, by, by the way, by Koko's um, a, otherwise a pop star. She hasn't done many films otherwise, um, is that we're all children who are never ready for adult responsibilities and are never ready to go out into the world fully. She starts having these horrific double vision uh, experiences where she sees one person coming at her with a big smiley face. And then that same person to the right is coming at her ready to assault her. And that's how she sees the world. That's how she sees the strangers out on the street and just everything is anxiety inducing to her. Uh, It's shot on digital and it is shaky and disorienting in the way that only Sukumoto could do it. So, of course, where are we going to take this woman is the question. You know, are we just going to be watching her holding this baby, nearly dropping it in every scene? No, because he's going to introduce himself as a love interest for her. Of course, Sukumoto's got to put himself in the movie as some kind of sadomasochist who comes into this film and wants to be involved with this relationship, even though mainly it's her, you know, cutting his face open and like pushing him down and punching him in the face (laughs) and loving it because what more can we do to make this the most unsettling domestic situation you've ever seen on film? This is worse than Visitor Q. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's also, this movie is extremely funny at times as well, and extremely poetic and beautiful as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tragic. Super, it's super intimate. I'd call it a tragic yeah. domestic thriller that's about actual palpable mental and physical pain. That's also touching and hilarious. Yes, <laughs> and it yeah. has it has one of the most beautiful. The last five minutes of this movie are so beautiful. They could only be done by Sukamoto. They're so you could sit and write your guesses for how this movie ends for the rest of your life and never arrive at what happens in these last few minutes of this movie. <laughs> and it's wow. really beautiful and it's super intimate. And it's like all Sukamoto movies, it has that underground feel still where it feels like this is just him with a camera and an actor doing this somewhere, you know, like living out these psychodramas. Is this available or is it just, does it sound like you saw it at a festival? You know, I've got a Region 2 DVD. I'm not sure uh, if it is available out where. A lot of his more recent films have been harder to see, unfortunately, yeah. and I've had to see I mean, it at festivals. He, he's one of those insane poets. I remember when I saw Tetsuo. Yeah. I was like, is, my it, God. It feels like he's so inexplicable and so undefinable that it almost feels like painting him in the corner to call him a horror director. But to say that there wasn't a lot of horror in every single movie he's made would yeah, be right. incorrect, you know? Yeah. yeah. And this one even, it's, it's sort of like, is it a horror movie? But then you can go through and look at things that have been on our list. There's elements of Black Swan. There's elements of The Witch, you know? There's, mm-hmm. there's elements of other movies that we've talked about available in here, sort of that shifting unreliable reality, mm-hmm. you know, and evil doppelgangers and things like <laughs> oh, that. Oh, boy. Our um, standard uh, standard uh, uh, issue, not cliches, but standard issue uh, genre trappings that are a lot in this film. It's mm-hmm. a really, it's a movie too that to me feels really fragile. When when you say like it's so phenomenally good, I agree with that, but I also feel like overpraise can harm it because it is so small and intimate. Where it's if mm-hmm. you're expecting. There's a lot of ways in which it is an autistic tour de force, but there's also ways in which the work he does looks like trauma. You know what I mean? Where it's right. sort of it's sort of so small scale that uh, if you're expecting something luscious, you know that's yeah. not what this is at all. If you're expecting something super duper intense, that's what this is. Yeah, it's like Derek Jarm in The Last of England. You're like, wow, The Last of England, and then it's yeah. him walking around with flares and a, and a yes. crown on his head, and you're like, huh? <laughs> yes. it's very, it's very comparing it to art cinema. I think that sort of thing, I think, is is a good comparison too. It's like Jonas Meekus or something, like mm. a diary film, like it belongs wow. to that genre almost. Except it's him getting pummeled into the face until it's this massive, massive pustules and blood and him saying, ah, oh, I'm finally in love, you know, kind of thing. And, just <laughs> and, like, and, and this is where we find out who of your listeners are the true horror fans. There's those <laughs> that are going, and I don't need to see that. And then there's the other ones going, region two, you say. Yeah, hmm. let's get that. Yeah, I would say if it sounds like I've been vague about it to an extent, it might be that I am not recommending this movie. <laughs> it might be that I would dare you to try to watch this movie. <laughs> uh, but would say if you do, uh, it is poetic and beautiful at the same time that it is incredibly disturbing and uh, a scary fucking movie, in my opinion. Uh, great. So we've got two more great people here. Um, Rachel Nesbitt is the first. Rachel Nesbitt is my favorite geologist. Geologist. I just screwed it up. It's a word I invented and I screwed it up. My favorite geologist. She's uh, written booklet essays for Dario Argento and Sergio uh, Martino home video releases. Uh, she's done essays, fantastic essays, 
on fashion, architecture, and the designs of Giallo films. Uh, she's done locations uh, from famous Giallo films, written those up. Um, I couldn't recommend higher to go to her website, Hypnotic Crescendos, which has a lot of these writings and uh, links to other ones. And uh, just serendipitously, she has a new Giallo-based podcast, Fragments of Fear, a Giallo podcast, which is available on Spotify and Podbean, so you can go check that out mm. immediately. Stop listening to this episode and go listen to that. Um, her commentary before her list is, I ended up whittling my picks down by trying to pick a selection of films that represented different facets of my love of horror, as well as ones that represented a few different countries. So she goes, Kill List, mm. Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, 2013, Baskin from Turkey 2015 by Ken Evernault. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. The Neon Demon and Us, Jordan Peele's film from this year, 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, Baskin uh, is a batshit crazy movie. Oh, yeah. That's a rough one. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that movie. I, but as we go through my picks, you'll see that there are, there's at least one that has this thing that I love where you guys are talking about how uh, the unreliability of time and place. Yes. Yeah. You know, and and uh, this movie goes back to like some of the crazy 70s films, that, yeah. uh, nonlinear work, but I, with I, this crazy. found it too unpleasant to have any good memories of. Like I'm aware it's a good film, <laughs> but I almost, it, it might be too far for me, that one. Yeah. It that felt Clyde Barker's Clyde Barker. This yeah. Oh yeah, I mean that that may be, I mean, what, what can you say at this point? That may be the most accurate depiction of hell I've ever, you yeah. know, yeah, what do you say? But uh, it, it truly was unsettling in the way that made you go, yeah, I really wouldn't want to have to go through any of that. And it's, yeah. it's <laughs> to think that they also shot that movie during a riot. Wow. Basket means riot. And they put on police outfits. Oh, riot's such a better... Yeah. Why don't they translate it? Baskin, I just think of Baskin Robbins every time. (laughs) Right. But yeah, it's, it's riot. And so during a riot, they were doing this and in a place that doesn't, you know, Turkey, you're not exactly. Riot hell block 13. Yeah, there you go. All I remember of that movie is like many heads getting crushed. And and me not believing a second of Vince Vaughn. Like this guy has never looked frightening (laughs) ever. And and he's still not frightening me. But uh, the uh, Baskin, yeah, I mean, I loved everything about that movie. I kept going, oh, they're going to fuck this up. They're going to fuck this up. And they just continued to push through. It felt very personal. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if it was because there was what was going on at the time was going on, uh, but obviously taking risks, talking about authority in such a way in a place where artistic freedom is not necessarily uh, a given, uh, I thought it was bold. And I think that that comes through sometimes movies. It's like somebody once said about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they said some movies just happen. <laughs> and Baskin kind of felt like that, where it was like almost what's happening around marinated the the the, the film that they were yeah. making it with. Well, it I commend it also weird. for taking breaks from the you know horrible things, you know those quiet moments that it inserts into it between yeah. back at the diner, you know where yeah. it inserts those moments, and you know it's not just full on carnage. Once you know uh, yeah. they get down into that pit, so it's definitely a film that you know cares about you know the characters and what it wants to say and i definitely appreciate that about it also 
Yeah, let me say one thing about Rachel Nesbitt too. I am not much of a Giallo fan and her writing on Giallo provided me a real access point for understanding the appeal of the genre in a way that I hadn't before. Her take on it in terms of its surface pleasures of fashion and architecture were really helpful for me to understand what uh, the big enthusiasts of the genre get out of it. I'd love to speak to her about it. I'll have to see about getting in terms of it because I had a, a part of my book. I talk about yeah. Jalo, and I, I was talking. I wanted to talk specifically to women who yeah. could articulate why they were big fans. Because if somebody wanted to say, you know, that's just misogyny, I couldn't argue. You yeah, know, there's a certain point in Jalo, especially when you get to like the New York Ripper and stuff like yeah. that, where it's really how can what can you say? Yeah, you know? I don't think you have to go that deep for it to be, you know, yeah. to get to that point. I don't think you have to go far. I don't think, you know, New York Ripper is one of the most famous ones, you know, right, you right. Go far down the garden path to get to the to the drag. So it's interesting. Really straddles a line between art and depravity. <laughs> Yeah. And, and low and low culture. You know? Yeah. Just kind of a lot of them feel like they're made without a thought in their head. So her writing is really interesting on that. Yeah. She's very super knowledgeable. I would recommend her as yeah. the foremost. Yeah. One of the foremost thinkers yeah. on this. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Have you guys seen Knife Plus Heart? Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll talk we'll about be bringing it. that up later yeah, on. Oh, okay. On somebody's list later. So. <laughs> uh, next list comes from the one and only Stephanie Crawford. This summer completed yeah. her. This summer completed her compostensive series, exhuming tales from the crypt for Dread Central. Yeah, um, she uh, can you can find some of her archived writings at House of Reasonable Amount of Horrors, uh, which has uh, <laughs> links to fresh reviews from this year's Fantastic Fest, uh, just to get everything updated. Um, but she's also co-host of the Screencast, as well as everybody's favorite guest on multiple other podcasts. And Stephanie's list is... Stephanie is legitimately hilarious, too. If you don't yeah. follow her on Twitter, she's fucking awesome. Yes. The Ritual, David Buckner, 2017. The Conjuring. It follows David Robert Mitchell from 2014. The Lore. Agnieszka Smoneska, sorry, from Poland, 2015. And The Cabin in the Woods. I think it's Spoyenska. Skoyenska. Smoyenska. 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 I apologize to every filmmaker whose name I am butchering on this episode. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, I'm happy to see on here, uh, It Follows. That's another yes. one that I feel like is a real uh, epoch-defining film. I was actually surprised that it doesn't turn up on more people's lists. Yeah, it's another one that I think rubs people the wrong way. It, it touches on things that people aren't exactly, you know, uh, comfortable speaking about. Uh, I, I know a lot of people looked at it as a sexually transmitted disease, mm -hmm. but uh, I was told the key to it from someone was looking at the Me Too aspects of it. Yeah. That it's really about uh, not believing the victim. Yeah. And, and that's a really interesting way to unravel that film. But it, it, it's kind of like, um, oh my goodness, when you were talking about uh, The Untamed, uh, one of the things that came to my mind while we were talking about that is how sexuality, queasy sexuality, has been something that you can see in a lot of Mexican Spanish speaking films of the last decade. Yeah. And another one that has a queasiness to its sexuality as it follows. Yes. There's a, 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 a barbaric nature to it but it's so it's also so 
incredibly wonderfully creepy it starts out feeling like a john carpenter film and then yeah. it goes into this really bizarre kind of uh i don't know i wouldn't say lynching but it has this really almost surreal aspect to yeah it that it's takes very over. resistant to becoming a regular horror movie it's yes funny that that concept there's an alternate reality where that same concept, there's seven, it follows movies the way there's seven saws. You know what I mean? It has a concept yeah. that you could have made this a very regular franchise ready horror movie. And it, and it really Re is that. Yeah. And it's one of the few movies. I love how it looks. Um, there are moments in there that feel like, dreams that I've had where it's almost yeah. like there's a smoky haze in the room. The lamps aren't quite lit very bright yeah. and everybody's talking a little slow. And then they open up a door and this really big guy comes yeah. running down the head. I was like, holy shit, this feels like it's inside of my mind. Yeah, and no, it has like that le legit nightmare feeling of how you'll have a nightmare and somebody just walking towards you. You'll be terrified of that in the nightmare, that it manages to generate that is, is very effective. Also giving a deep thought to um, slasher movies where you know you have the killer following you and you this really kind of not well defined in those films why jason is stalking these people or yeah. why myers is coming after you it gives an interesting reason to it and the fact that the creature changes its shape and makes it like a personal face something that's a trauma from you know the, that person's life you know says things about the characters kind of unspoken things about like where this background of this character and why this is terrifying to them that yeah. this thing would be following them specifically. Yeah, and imbuing a sexuality in uncomfortable ways yeah. with people who are uncomfortable to even think sexually about and and so it really hits on uh teen angst you know teen yeah. uh, terror and I thought that it was really smart and scary. It actually had moments in it that chilled me. And I was going, this is really good. That scene with the guy up on the roof was so random and so frightening. And, you know, if you're looking at it in a Me Too kind of way, what the, you know, fuck, you look up and there's a naked guy falling. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that always the way? Yeah, that's that's around here. We call that Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Lore is probably the only film on any of these lists that's been released by Criterion. Do you know that one? I've not seen it, so I have it starred because I was like, "Oh, I've not seen this one." I yeah. remember hearing about it. But... Film, interesting film. It's um, kind of an interesting. It reminds me of most of from this decade of Spring. Oh, uh, I has, love sort Spring. Of a creature feature turned yeah. into a musical. Uh, you know, with the, the female monster and sort of the guy dealing with her yeah. in an interesting way. So, yeah, Spring was know. one. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything for you. Yeah, definitely check it out. Yeah, Spring is one that I really fought. Do I put that on this list or not? Yes. Yeah. That's another one that just, if you're not a horror fan, you know, and you see that movie, it should make you a horror fan because it just has this beauty and so much joyous, true emotion. Uh, it's the best acting performances I've seen from some of the actors that are in that film. I was yeah. like, wow, really truthful and so cheap. I think that's another movie that was made for nothing. They just happened to have a great location and worked with that. And uh, I mean, it just, everything about that movie made me feel like this is the next progression from folk horror. You know, the idea of taking nature as, you know, everything is supernatural or nothing is supernatural it's just that we yeah. haven't found it yet and yeah. uh, it's such a beautiful thought yeah, yeah absolutely the ritual is a good full horror film as well and on that note let us 
end this first episode of our, what's going to prove to be a three-part best of the decade horror film compendium list exploration. What's the word I'm looking for, John? A trilogy? It's, we're going to start our trilogy of terrification. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a good night, and we will be back shortly with episode Dose.